Good evening. I'm Kate France. And I'm Tabby Tyler. Tonight, we talk about women warriors in disguise. So grab a beverage. It's time for a night in. So, week two of distance recording. Week two of distance everything, to be honest. Yeah, our uh, lovely nation has been half-acidly attempting to quarantine itself for a little over 10 days now. Which means the population has been split into three groups. People who are required to go to work, people who are self-quarantined, and people who are not complying at all and are dirty, dirty plague bearers that history will not remember kindly. Yes, those of you in group three who have the option to stay home and are not get with the program so life can go back to normal. Because life, decidedly, isn't normal right now. My days consist of waking up, Trying to remember if I've always had a sore throat or if that's a new phenomenon. A cup of panic coffee while I read the news, followed by hours of forced anxious productivity in my yard to release some much-needed oxytocin. Yeah, if nothing else, my yard is having a hell of a quarantine glow-up since all I do when I go outside is yard work. Yeah, COVID-19 has affected the entire world. Social media has been an incredible source of unity in this isolating event. It's made it clear that this is a worldwide phenomenon and not something we can ignore or say isn't our problem. It's also realistically going to be a large part of how this whole experience is documented for posterity. We have a unique opportunity to have history written by all who experience it, not just governments and academics. People all over the world are sharing their day-to-day and what they're doing to create a new normal for themselves and society. Voting in the primaries last week was an example of that. Everyone standing six feet apart in line, no one shaking hands. The playground at my neighborhood park is taped off like a murder scene. Also, restaurants can't have dine-in service anymore. Bars are closed. We had a virtual girls' night with cocktails through Discord the other evening. (laughs) And had to see a movie through Netflix party because all the theaters are closed. Which is super responsible, but also super disappointing because I was looking forward to seeing Mulan with you this week. Yes, some of our OG listeners may remember that Shang is my Disney best boy and Mulan is one of my favorite Disney movies. So I was really excited to see the live action version. Especially since it's supposed to be a little closer to the original poem. No songs, no Mushu, no Shang. And this is okay because though Western audiences have generally only been introduced to Mulan through the 90s animated film, this is far from her first incarnation. The closest comparison I could make would probably be King Arthur. Much like Arthur, Mulan is a fictional character, probably based on several real people, and was popularized through an ancient piece of writing, which has been reinterpreted, revised, and had many authors throughout history attempt to tell the core story with their own flair. In the original poem, The Ballad of How Mulan, the Ruran, a tribe... Oh my god. What? What? Kate, the guy across the street just started leaf blowing. No. I haven't seen him exit his house in over a week. No. But now, when we're trying to record, 
he needs to take care of his lawn. It's like 98 degrees outside. Oh Why my. do you want to be outside uh, right now? You know, what I'm wrong I'm you? honestly, I'm going to keep this in so people know <laughs> that we're not doing this on purpose. This is, this is what it is to work from home, guys. <laughs> Distance recording, y'all. Oh this is not God. easy. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, all right. Move on. Let me get Go. back into the mood. <laughs> in the original poem... The Ballad of Hao Mulan. The Ruran, a tribe believed to be of Mongolian descent, were preparing to invade China. When the Chinese army demanded a male from every family enlist to defeat the Ruran, Mulan, already trained in martial arts, sword fighting, and archery, goes instead of her elderly father or little brother. She disguises herself as a man and, with the support of her parents, enters the military and serves for 12 years. After going home, without Disney's dramatic reveal of her identity and following boss fight in the Emperor's palace, Mulan puts on her old clothes and meets her fellow soldiers, who are pretty blown away that in the 12 years of their enlistment together, they never noticed they were fighting alongside a woman. 12 years is a long time to maintain any ruse. 12 years is a long time for a lot of things. I did my waiting. 12 years of it in Azkaban. <laughs> just I had to drop in that Harry Potter reference. You nerd. <laughs> I did my waiting. Twelve years of it. It has been. All right. <laughs> in the poem The Ballad of Mulan, Mulan likely serves as a fictional character who represents women who disguise themselves to enter into service rather than any individual female warrior. However, we were inspired by her story to research some real documented female badasses. My dad was instrumental in finding some of these really cool ladies. So, thanks, Dad. Much like Mulan's parents, I feel your progressive support in my fight against the patriarchy. Also, we want to clarify that for our criteria, we did not include people who identified as men or who would live out their lives as men after their service. Trans men are men, and these stories are about women who, as best as we can tell through historical context and documentation, identified as such. We absolutely need to do an episode on trans men throughout history and their contributions to our global culture. Some of the women who have disguised themselves as men, you are likely to have heard of. For example, Deborah Sampson, who fought in the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War. Standing at five foot nine inches, she was three inches taller than the average man. Her height aided in her enlistment in an elite infantry company with whom she saw warfare and some wartime souvenirs. She would spend the rest of her life with a musket ball that she was unable to remove from her leg. And also one of the first women to receive a U.S. pension from the military. The first to receive a U.S. military pension was Margaret Corbin, who also served in the Revolutionary War, though she was not an enlisted soldier. Her husband operated a cannon, and she was one of the many infamous Molly pitchers who would bring buckets of cold water onto the battlefield to cool down overheated cannons. At the Battle of Fort Washington, Margaret's husband was killed, and in the heat of battle, she took over the operation of his cannon and continued the fight. In contrast, Cathay Williams was born enslaved in the United States and during the Civil War gained her freedom, disguised herself as a man, and served the United States Army. She also served as the only known female Buffalo soldier. 
But unlike the over 400 women who served during the Civil War, Cathay was the only documented woman to serve in the United States Army, even while disguised as a man, during the Indian Wars. These distinctions didn't serve her as well as her white counterparts, though. Cathay was denied a pension and disability. And even though these are names you may be familiar with, there are many female names that have been lost to history and others that teeter on the edge of obscurity. Like that of Princess Wolanski, during World War I, she masqueraded as a man to avenge her husband, father, and brother by joining a Russian infantry. After being injured, she expressed that her only desire was to get better and return to battle. Or Zoya Smirnow, who, along with 11 of her schoolmates, ran away from school in Moscow and disguised themselves as men so they could fight in the war. Her sex was discovered after she was wounded, and her story was retold in a book by Magnus Hirschfeld, a book that would later be banned and burned by the Third Reich, titled The Sexual History of the World War. There are countless women, well-known and forgotten, but today we wanted to tell the stories of our favorites, so we have each picked a female badass to talk about. And I'm going to start with my favorite, or favorites, since badass women come better in pairs, especially when they're sisters. This story takes place 2,000 years ago, and though there's little but legend remaining about the lives of our heroes, what is not legend was the angst people in Vietnam felt against the ever-encroaching arm of Chinese hegemony during the Han Dynasty. In 111 BCE, the Han Dynasty began its southern expansion into Vietnam. And with this expansion came the brutal treatment of the Vietnamese people they were conquering. Fertile land was taken from the Vietnamese and given to Chinese immigrants. Changes to societal values were enacted as China attempted to make the Vietnamese a patriarchal society that would be more amiable to authority. Taxes were raised and reforms to marriage and land inheritance laws were put in place. The pernicious fog of assimilation had taken a hold of Vietnam, but there were those who would refuse to have smoke in their eyes. The Trung sisters are the heroines of this story. They were raised in North Vietnam and were educated by their father, who saw to it that both sisters were well-versed in literature and martial arts. Their father was prefect of the region of Meilin, and his position granted him land and titles, both of which his daughters were in line to inherit. His eldest daughter, Trung Trak, married a man named Tai Sak, the son of a doctor. As forced cultural assimilation grew and Chinese rule became more severe, Tai Sak made a stand against the Chinese. The Chinese commandery of the region, Su Ding, made an example of Tai Sak as a warning to any person who considered rebellion. He punished Trung Trak as well and lit the fires of her ire. The legend goes that Trung Trak, who was enraged by the atrocities of the Chinese government, organized a peasant revolt. To display her strength as a warrior, Trung Trak killed an invincible tiger that had been terrorizing the village and wrote her proclamation of revolution on the tiger's skin. She mustered an army of mostly women, including her sister and mother, and with this army, they were able to expel the governor who killed Trung Trak's husband. Other legend has it that they were supported by lacklords and other aristocrats, but lacked a solid peasant base. 
This is more likely, for though the sisters were victorious in chasing the Chinese out of northern Vietnam by capturing 65 Chinese strongholds throughout the region, they were unable to fight off the seasoned general the Chinese sent in retaliation. After the liberation of northern Vietnam in 40 CE, the Trung sisters were hailed as queens. While in power, they made efforts to return North Vietnam to its ancient roots by removing the requirements of Chinese customs and removing the taxes that the Chinese had imposed on the people. For two years, the Trung sisters ruled and fought against Chinese insurgency, until at last, the Han Emperor sent in a foe they could not vanquish. Ma Yun was a respected Chinese general. He was known for his perseverance and the respect he showed to both his equals and subordinates. His army was extremely experienced and he easily defeated the Trung sisters. Chinese legend states that Ma Yun defeated the sisters and sent their heads to the emperor, but the Vietnamese accounts state otherwise. According to one legend, when the sisters were defeated they vanished into the sky. Another story tells that they retreated to the hot Gaing River and threw themselves in where they turned to stone. When they washed ashore, their statues were placed at the Hai Ba Trung Temple where they were worshipped from then on. The Trung sisters to this day serve as a symbol of Vietnamese independence. Many temples are dedicated to them and many roads and buildings have also been named in their honor. A historian who edited the complete annals of Dai Viat summarized the sisters' quote, Trung Chak, Trung Ni, are women, with a single cry led the prefectures of Ku Chan, Nat Nam, Hap Pho, and 65 strongholds heed their call. They established a nation and proclaimed their rule as easily as their turning over their hands. It awakened all of us that we can be independent. Unfortunately, between the fall of the True Dynasty and the rise of the Nguyen Dynasty, in the span of more than 1,000 years, men of this land only bowed their heads and accepted the fate of servitude to the people from the north. End quote. So you can see why I love these sisters. Absolutely. So tell me about yours. Well, one of the most famous women warrior in disguise figures in history is Joan of Arc, the renowned French teenager executed by the English for heresy in 1431 and eventually made a saint by the Catholic Church. Joan accompanied an army during the Hundred Years' War, wearing the clothing of a male soldier, which ultimately provided a reason for her conviction and execution, though it was all likely done more to diminish the impact she had on the French people. Except, oops, too late. Joan is pretty much the most iconic individual of her time period. Historian Kelly DeVry said, quote, No person of the Middle Ages, male or female, has been the subject of more study than Joan of Arc. She has been portrayed as saint, heretic, religious zealot, seer, demented teenager, proto-feminist, aristocratic wannabe, savior of France, person who turned the tide of the Hundred Years' War, and even Marxist liberator. End quote. Which is why we won't be saying anything more about her. Joan is hella interesting, but she has a contemporary who isn't studied nearly as often and I really love. Honorata Rodiani. 
The time of Joan of Arc and Odorata Rodiani was a transitionary period between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Italy, where this story takes place, was still feeling the effects of the Black Plague decades earlier, while also seeing an emerging culture prizing art, philosophy, and science. The 14th century also saw Italy divided between the Kingdom of Naples and Sicily in the south, the Papal States in central Italy, and the Maritime Republics in the north. Our story takes place primarily in northern Italy, where different noblemen fought to climb the ladder of power and treated their townships like little kingdoms. Much like the Trun sisters, Onorata Rodiani is referred to by historians as semi-legendary. This means we have enough documentation to know that most of the story is true, but her folk hero status means that there may have been some embellishments we can't prove or disprove. Onorata was a fresco painter in the Middle Ages, which was incredibly uncommon for a woman for many reasons. It was a career path that took you far from home, it took exhaustive training, you worked primarily with men, and you spent a great deal of your time on scaffolding painting Jesus onto ceilings. None of this really jived with middle-age values for women. Although an unusual choice, she was hired to decorate a palace with paintings. This, by the way, would be the only recorded painting commission given to a woman in that whole century. The palace in question belonged to Gabrino Fondolo, the, quote, tyrant ruler of the Italian province known as Cremona. Onorata would then experience something all women in male-dominated fields experience. Or uh, really any field, honestly. Yeah. (sighs) Workplace harassment. While she was painting a fresco, a young courtier, or wealthy nobleman, was, quote, indecent with her. Though some stories flat out say he attempted to rape her. But Onorata Rodiani was not a lady you can lay hands on. And instead, she stabbed the courtier to death. (laughs) Faced with what she believed would absolutely be a noose or an executioner's blade, Onorata disguised herself as a man and slipped out of Cremona to go into hiding under a new identity. She was quoted as saying, It is better to live honored outside my homeland than dishonored within it. Which is so metal. Yeah, she gets cooler, though. While exiled from her homeland in 1423, she entered the service of a condottiere, or a mercenary commander, as a cavalryman. Gabrino Fondolo, that tyrant who hired her, tried and pardoned her too, but evidently she got a thirst for danger that she just couldn't quench. I say this because cavalry in the Middle Ages was no walk in the park. Generally, cavalrymen focused on shock combat, otherwise known as scaring the pants off of organized enemy troops by being as imposing and effective of a soldier as possible, while on a horse. Wearing armor, and using a sword, pike, or scythe. According to Conrado Flameno in his Storia di Castellone, or The History of Castellone, written in 1590, she did this with her true gender, quote, unknown to all, for 29 years, and would eventually command her own troop. During her time as a mercenary, she worked under the Sforza family, who would control Milan throughout the Renaissance. 
While under this command, in 1452, her hometown of Castellone, at the time a smaller municipality within Cremona, came under siege by Venice. According to Castellonian legend, she came riding to her town's rescue, and she and her men ended the siege, but not without a great cost. Onorata was mortally wounded in the battle and was carried into town. Conrado Flamenno states that she was, quote, recognized with great amazement and died thereafter. There is debate as to whether this means she was recognized as a hero or whether those who knew her in her youth recognized her and her true identity was revealed. Honored I lived, honored I shall die are said to be her dying words, and though she doesn't have the notoriety of Joan, she is certainly honored in Castellone and Cremona, where there are even a few paintings they claim were her work. 29 years as a mercenary is quite the 180 from fresco painter. This is true. Though local legends in Castellone say that she would return home from time to time to paint, which I really hope is true. I mean, I really hope she would go out there on horseback, make a bunch of money fighting like a badass, and then go home and paint some masterpieces. What's that saying? Make art, not war? She did both. You see why I love her? Another week apart in person, but not in spirit. No, none of us are apart in spirit, which is how we will make it through these trying times. We love you, and we miss you. Is there anything random you all want to learn about that isn't COVID-19? Yeah, send either of us a message and we'll do a show on it. And in the meantime, stay safe out there. And we'll see you next week.